Thank you so much for listening to DNVR Biz. For the 95% of you that are listening to this through a mobile device, I would really appreciate it if you opened up that app right now and gave this a five-star review. It's the only way for this podcast to become more visible and reach more people. Thanks again. Welcome to another episode of DNVR Biz. Happy to be back with you guys. It's been an incredible week. Bar has been packed. We've had incredible turnout for all of these games and they've really been like home games like and i mean that as in like we used to do watch parties on away games and say it's making an away game feel like a home game but now everything is an away game and we're so removed from what the world used to be like this is like it it's been almost like reproducing the old world for the people inside of it, even though we can only have 50 here. It gets insane. So insane that we have made sure not to tweet any videos so to, so we don't get dragged just because it almost feels wrong to celebrate together, as weird as that sounds. Anyway, speaking of communities, I have a really great guest on today, a guy who built the original digital sports community in this state and i would say the he founded denver stiffs which for a long time has been the epicenter of nuggets culture in this town he's the cd ceo of exto development uh he's really had a big hand and been in in big one of the key people in uh you know the way we've seen rhino transform over the last decade he is on the economic relief and recovery council and a bunch of other committees and we're really excited to have him in it's andrew feinstein he's going to be with me today really incredible podcast so hope you guys enjoy let's go now to andrew feinstein Andrew, thanks, man. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Spano, it's a pleasure, and it's so cool to be at the DNBR bar, you know, despite all of the myriad of businesses that I've had the fort- <laughs> fortune and misfortune of being involved in. Uh, you There's got to be some misfortune. Well, yeah, 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 especially. Or, in the, or you're not doing it. But, right? but uh, you know, at the end of the day, the sports bar space is near and dear to my heart. And to see you combine media with hospitality and do it the way you're doing it and the way your team is doing it. And we know a lot of the same guys that are part of your team because they used <laughs> yeah. to be part of our team at yeah, Denver yeah. Stiff. Small town still. Uh, kind of a, small town vibe, right? It's a small town vibe, but I am incredibly impressed. And I'm also apologetic that it's taken me a while to get here, but <laughs> we're going to blame that on COVID. So I'm just proud of you. I'm excited for you and your team. And uh, we're going to use a Yiddish or a Jewish term, mazel tov, on your success. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah appreciate that. You know, yeah. And as you know, I mean, one of the big things for us the biggest thing for us is community and you know we'll start before we get into real big business stuff and committees and regulations and uh real estate and everything let's start with that because you built denver stiffs originally before it was acquired by sb nation years ago kind of the forefront of this sports fan blogging thing and you know, not only is it transformed a lot, but somewhere in there, these a lot of these kind of became 
page view. I don't know even what to call it conversion monsters and and they kind of lost their 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 original thing but what you originally developed was this place where fans got together and it was exactly what we try to do here and have done here except for the Nuggets community and it was at the time, you know, one of the biggest team communities in the country, you were doing Stiff's Night Outs before we even launched this as BSN Denver six years ago. So talk about just kind of the vision, what the world was like back then, you know, the old horse and wagon days. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about it. I launched it in 2008 and I wish I had uh, the vision and the foresight that you're giving me credit for. <laughs> I literally launched it because I, I felt like the Denver Nuggets were so undercovered. Mm. You know, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post at that time had combined the, forces. The what? The Rocky Mountain Yeah, exactly. What? And the Rocky Mountain News had, had been, it was dead at that time. So it was a one newspaper town. And Benjamin Hockman, who's still a good friend of all of ours, you know, was the only guy covering the Nuggets. And he had to write to the print. He had to write to the print requirements of the paper. Just think about that. This is 2008. So, the, so if you would go online, DenverPost.com, you would literally be reading exactly what Benjamin Hockman wrote in print or Chris Dempsey, okay? So I thought, this is ridiculous. We have this online medium where we can write whatever we want. The team is undercovered. Moreover, I felt like the fan wasn't getting his or her voice. Nobody, was, nobody heard from the fan, you know? And I love Mark Kisla. He was very supportive when we got launched. I like Hockman. I like Dempsey. But with all due respect to those guys, they're not season ticket holders, they're not fans. They're yeah, journalists. Yeah, that's their right. job. And, there's, and that's great. That's a wonderful profession. That's right, that's right. I felt like the fan didn't have a voice. I was a lifelong season ticket holder. And so I represented the ticket payer, the ticket holder, the guy, the guy or the gal who actually pays for that ticket to enter that building. And I look at it like you're a taxpayer. And the team has an obligation. It doesn't mean you can go 0 and 82 in the case of basketball. Baseball, you can go 0 and 162. But you have an obligation as an organization to your community to, to, to work your tail off from ownership all the way down to the lowest man on the roster. And I didn't feel like the Nuggets were giving the, their community that level of commitment. And I wrote about it and it resonated and it caught on. And the next thing I knew, we had more readers than the Denver Post. Although I think <laughs> in hindsight, that was a pretty low bar and you guys have obliterated it since. But that's really what the, the genesis was. Is I felt like there was no voice of the fan and the fan had to have a voice. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So let's talk about how that grew. That grows to a point to where it changes hands a couple times and then it falls into the lap of our mutual friend and my business partner now, Adam Mares. Yep. And I, I felt like, I, I don't know, is it fair to say that Adam took that and, and just kind of put a rocket to it and launched it to a different galaxy? Yeah, very much so. And I give Adam all the credit in the world. You know, there's, there's a little nuance to the history. Uh, Nate Timmons was writing a blog yeah, yeah. Who, who also worked with you. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. writing a blog yeah. um, for SB Nation, which had a different moniker. I had launched Denver Stiffs, and SB Nation basically brought us together. And my condition was is that it's called Denver Stiffs. And Nate was kind of the day-to-day -day reporter, if you will, and I was the editorial guy. And we had such a huge audience that Nate and I, who also had full-time jobs at the time, couldn't keep up with the demand. So then we brought on Jeff Morton, and that's something we can talk about with business today. Jeff was my rival. 
You talk about community. Jeff was the one guy who <laughs> killed me in the comments, no matter what I wrote. If I said, you know what? The sky was uh, really blue today. He would comment, no, it's not. It's black today. You know. So, so Jeff was my antagonist, but he was a good writer. And he had a really strong opinion. So we brought Jeff on. So Nate, Jeff, and I were the original, you know, guys who kind of got this thing going, got Stiff's Night Out going. And then Adam, I, I don't remember, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember how Adam came into our orbit. But by the time Adam came in, I think Nate was already working with you. My other business ventures, which actually paid the bills, were taking off. And uh, Adam gave us an opportunity, as you just said, he took it like a rocket ship into orbit. And whatever we had built up, he took it to another level. I give him all the credit in the world for that. I love him for that. I know it sounds a little corny, but I love him for that. And he also brought on a great group of other writers who yeah. really accelerated the growth, and many of whom are now here at DNVR. And, and also, I'll give Adam credit. The gentlemen that are running Denver Stiffs now are disciples of Adam's leadership. So, so yeah, so again, but we always put community first. You know, Denver Stiffs, Stiffs Night Outs. We did contests. We did the Denver Stiffs Hall of Fame. We did the Stiffy of the Year Award. We always engaged our readers as much as possible, responded to tweets, responded to comments. I was very responsive. And if you're not willing to do that, then you shouldn't be in this business because you've got to talk to your community. It's got to be a two-way conversation, not a one-way conversation. Yeah, I love that. We always say that we're in the crowd, not on the stage. I love that. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of this thing like, and you can still be a leader in the crowd. Yep. Um, but you're in the crowd. You're part of that. You're giving people a voice. And that's still even, even like in our live shows and stuff now, you know, to go back to Adam, he brought in a thing where... You know, on the Nuggets podcast, on the live streams, they would do a question or, or, or I'm sorry, they would do a contest, uh, you know, essentially 10 questions. You get to kind of climb the mountain and a fan gets to go on. Yeah, the so I failed. So I did the show oh, with them a did, couple did months ago. <laughs> I got through the first like six or seven. Okay. No problem. Then it gets tough. Yeah, and they got yeah, to yeah. the last one and I outthunk myself or outthought myself. They asked me, <laughs> yeah, who's the Nuggets all time leader in blocks for a season? And I was just like, it's got to be Marcus Camby. It can't be my tumbo. That's too obvious. This poor fan had gotten like seven straight. I'm the Nuggets historian, or at least I used to be. And I said, Marcus Camby. And it's Matumbo. Oh. And so I totally screwed this fan over who was on your show. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a good call because you would feel anything that's a Matumbo answer, you would think, especially if it's like seven or eight. Yeah, like, it was like why, the last. Why would it be like eight? You got it. It was yeah, like the yeah, last yeah. question. Yeah. I was even thinking like, gosh, is it Wayne Cooper? Like, is it some obscure guy? It can't be Matumbo. By the way, did you see our David Thompson signed jersey above I, the bar? One of the first things I saw, and you've, you've been in my office, you've yeah. seen, I've got the Superman 3 poster yeah, with yeah, yeah. Issel Thompson in English. And uh, how cool is it that, I know this is, we're going to talk business, and I want to talk business because <laughs> I talk nuggets all the time <laughs> when I'm with you guys. But how cool is it to see Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic on a list that includes Alex English and David Thompson, meaning oh, yeah. the highest That's scoring cool. produced ever by a Nugget in playoff series. It's That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. That is really cool. Well, Nuggets are exciting. We could do a whole podcast on Nuggets. So let's let's pivot into business a little bit here. I want to talk about Rhino in particular before we even get into Exto. Because you got you had a spot down there before it was Rhino like you know the the popular go-to huge boom place you know you were kind of one of the original kind of guys that dug in there so talk about that area kind of what it means to you what's happened in and where it's at now sure so rhino uh, just for the the listeners that may not know rhino stands for river north and that's because rhino is located 
about a mile north, well, the heart of Rhino, which is where we're located specifically at Exto. We're about a mile northeast of Coors Field. And so that's why it's called Rhino River North. The Platte River runs on the north side of the city of Denver, northeast. Um, so that's why we're called Rhino. Rhino was historically an industrial warehouse district. Uh, Definitely. That yeah. basically, you know, was the epicenter of industry in Denver post-World War II. Yeah, if you needed to get rid of metal, yeah. there's somewhere in Rhino you got that it. you can drop you got your it. metal off and, and they, get paid Yeah, there. you got yeah. it. You got it. Yeah. I shouldn't even say post-World War II. Pre and post-World War II, it was kind of the epicenter of an industry for Denver. But as Denver grew and as these warehouses and, frankly, manufacturing left the city of Denver and moved to Commerce City or to Adams County or to other parts, eastern, you know, eastern part of Denver on the way to the airport— you know, Rhino basically became effectively abandoned. Um, and a lot of those warehouses were just were just empty with storage, maybe some light manufacturing and stuff. So my business partner, my predecessor, my mentor, uh, the original Denver Stiffs fan, Marty Chernoff, I got to give him the credit. He had the vision to invest in this community. He was in the nightclub business with my dad for many, many years. And he bought the block, which is where the Exto Event Center and the Tracks nightclub is today for a couple of reasons. One, mile northeast of Denver. Two, it was a giant warehouse where you can bring people together. And whoever thought that you and I, Brandon, would be, uh, be, it'd, we'd be in the wrong business in terms of bringing people together. You know, <laughs> oh, I, I know. never thought Unbl- that'd be a problem. Unreal, right? So he had that vision and that really was where he planted his flag. And then Rhino kind of grew around our enterprise. Exto stands for extended downtown because we're on the outskirts of downtown. So we led, just like you're doing here, we led with a hospitality play of bringing people together. So parties, events, concerts, fundraisers, whatever you can do. And when I moved home back here 11 years ago, I couldn't beg someone to book an event there. Last year, we had over 300 events. And so the neighborhood kind of grew around us. And as much as I'd love to give ourselves credit for it, a lot of it's organic. You know, we are on the outskirts of downtown Denver. Denver has grown. And so when real estate speculators came into Denver, you know, they can't afford to build downtown where either it's already built or the prices are exorbitant. They came to Rhino to invest, building upon the culture that we built, not just through our nightclub and our event center, but with the artists and the community that was there alongside us. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. All of these always go back to building this community thing. And that always kind of goes back to making that a part of your culture. You know, the fascinating thing about it is like if you care about people and you want to build things for people. There's not actually like a secret recipe. People know that you care about them and want to do it, and that attracts people. You you just can't fake it, you know. Uh, if if you don't, and and it's this kind of procedural front facing model that doesn't have a, this kind of return on it, people feel that too. So I, I always say that because I feel like we've created a bunch of stuff for people. There's not necessarily a recipe that attracts a bunch of people. It's just that we care about people. We want to be around people. They know it. They get it. We all hang out together and it just happens. It comes together. Well, it's, you, as, you're, as I'm listening to you say this, you're bringing up a lot of good parts of Rhino's history. You know, Rhino's unique in that we had a lot of legacy property owners, including ourselves, sure, who sure. really did care about the community, who really did care about the people. And we kind of developed stuff and built stuff, whether it was coffee or beer, you know, breweries, coffee shops, our club, our bar, whatever. We kind of built stuff that we'd want to hang out in. Mm. And you had very few property owners and, and we had very few property owners who controlled a lot of property. So we were able to kind of dictate by collaborating with the city. We were kind of able to dictate what was coming a little bit, a little bit. You know, you can't control development. You can't control capitalism. But we were able to kind of dictate what was coming, which is why, as you've seen Rhino evolve, it's walkable. 
it's diverse. We have affordable housing. You know, we don't, not every single building is a cookie cutter mm. apartment building like the ballpark neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Everything has retail on the ground floor. So we, we were able to kind of- Art. Uh, still, art's still at the forefront of everything we do in Absolutely. Rhino. Art is still at the forefront. Why? Because the artists who activated those abandoned warehouses that I was just mentioning, a lot of the artists own those warehouses. Mm. So, so we've, we've put art at the forefront. We've put people, like you just said, at the forefront. Walkability is, I know I'm repeating myself, but incredibly important. Cycling safety, incredibly important. Open space, incredibly important. We just worked with the city for the last two years to open a park. It's called the Rhino Park. And we have a brand new park now, you know, at 35th and Chestnut. It's an incredible, incredible park. I would encourage your, re- your listeners to come check out. So I think Rhino, we're doing it right. We don't do everything perfectly, but we're doing it right. And I'm really proud of it. And we were on an accelerated, to answer the last part of your question, we were on an accelerated growth pattern, accelerated, and then COVID hits. And it's basically put a giant pause button on a lot of the new development that was coming. Yeah. Um, I, I don't believe that Rhino is a if story, it's a when story, but the when has been delayed. There's no question. Uh, you know, I want to talk about something that is interesting to me and even get your perspective on how it's changed on just, you know, maybe the biggest levels to you that you've seen. You've really been big on the LGBTQ community. You were kind of on the forefront. I don't want to, you know, you didn't invent the gay bar, but in Denver, I, I think it's pretty pretty safe to say that you probably pushed the envelope you were on the front creating the most inclusive places uh place in in at least scaling it to a point to where it was you know known citywide and stuff so if we go from a business perspective we always talk about demos and in sports you know all we're talking about with agencies all day is this male demo and it's it's uh it's a very different demo than the one we're talking about now that's this 25 to 34 kind of you know, we all know what our demo looks like uh, on the sports side, but let's let's kind of talk about that model, that community as as a business, that community, the way that things have changed, perspective has changed now that you've been essentially in that business for a couple decades now. So just I don't know, maybe kind of all of it just kind of encapsulated or, sure. you know. Well, so my family, again, I got to give Marty and my dad a lot of credit. You know, they had the vision. Uh, I mean, who, who would have thought that two straight Jewish guys, uh, two straight Jewish Republicans would get into the gay, <laughs> gay nightclub business in yeah, the 70s. Sure. And, but again, Republican in the 70s versus Republican today were two sure, very sure, different things. Different, and we yeah. can talk about, about that too. I'm, a, I'm an independent, so I like to offend. Yeah, yeah, me too. I like to offend too. both sides equally. <laughs> Happy to. But to me, since they got involved in this business in the 70s, Right around when I was born, I grew up with it. So to me, inclusivity is just n- human nature mm, for me. Mm. I learned a lot. That's why I'm, I'm struggling with a lot of this stuff that's going on societally right now because yep. I was always raised, you, ha- you should absolutely celebrate who you are, but it shouldn't disqualify you from mm. everything, but it shouldn't automatically qualify you for anything mm. either. And so I've really struggled with this because I was always raised that you embrace everybody equally. You know, I don't believe in implicit bias. I don't believe in that stuff. So I'm trying to relate this to the business. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I yeah. was raised. No, that no, I love this. Inclusivity is a no brainer. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's no question that there was a market at the time, especially in the 80s, when mm-hmm. I really grew up in this business and the 90s, when the LGBTQ community wasn't properly served as a community from a business standpoint. Oh, absolutely. They weren't absolutely. listened to, they weren't talked to, they weren't given a good product. And tracks, which is our Products nightclub, for them, places for them to go. So, yeah, so you tra- know, all yeah, yeah, yeah. So tracks, which was our nightclub, was the first of its kind that was a high tech, high energy, studio fifty four quality 
nightclub just for that community. Because yeah. in those days, it was only underground. It was, uh, you know, the door down the alley that you had to sneak into. Right. You know, even the Stonewall Riots, which is the launching of the gay pride movement in 1969, was birthed out of the fact that this bar that was owned by the mafia in New York was allowing LGBTQ folks to congregate, but they weren't even allowed to congregate back then. I mean, that's where that comes from. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so I was taught day one inclusivity, number one, it's paramount to everything we stand for, it's paramount to everything we do, and it was a great business model up until recently, but for a good reason. We have become, contrary to what you're hearing in the media, we have become a more inclusive society. Right. And so in the 80s or the 90s, if you happen to be of the LGBTQ persuasion, you may not have been welcomed in another person, in a quote unquote straight bar. Oh, sure. Well, here we are in 2020. Mm. And back to my point about, point. I don't really care what your skin color is. Just like, I don't really care what your yeah. sexual orientation is or your gender is. I mean, it's great that let's again, let's celebrate it, but I don't, it doesn't affect my opinion of you one way or the other. Right. The need for an LGBTQ only establishment has actually gone away. And so we have we just like every that's every, that's fascinating. Let me just jump yeah. in. It's fascinating because it's almost like this kind of closed mindedness and prejudice kind of provokes a business opportunity to create an environment that's friendly to people. Once that those walls come down, the product isn't needed as much anymore. You got well, for example. Okay, so I'm Jewish. You know, no, not a big secret. My last name is Feinstein, right? <laughs> not religious, but I'm Jewish. Well, when Some I was some people might say Feinstein. I've heard that. Either one's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was growing up, there was a country club here in town called Green Gables. It was the Jewish country club. Well, why was there a Jewish country club? That's because Jews were not allowed mm. to go to Denver Country Club or Cherry Hills Country Club. They were literally excluded simply because of their ethnicity and their religious orientation. Okay. Mm. Well, those rules are gone, way gone, abolished, no longer in place. And guess what? Green Gables doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So as tracks, we're always trying to find that balance between we are LGBTQ first, but we are certainly welcoming and wanting of everyone to be here and celebrate sure. with us because tracks used to be five nights a week. Think about this, Spano. Five nights a week, tracks was open, almost exclusively LGBTQ. Now it's really only on Saturday nights. You know, Thursday nights were 18 plus. It's a college night. Friday nights, we rotate. We do goth. We do a women's party. We do a roller skating party. We do uh, burlesque shows. You know, we have to mix it up because this is a good thing societally. Less people care. Yeah. Less people care about yeah. those divisions. And millennials in particular really don't care. Oh, yeah. I mean, you tell a 19-year-old, this is a place just for LGBT. Right. You're like, every place is for By the way, they'd actually be offended. They'd oh. be offended. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. The that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. They, they would I almost get the cancel culture warriors on me. Right. If I said this was LGBTQ only. Right. So, so wow. we've, we've seen okay. it. I've had a front row seat to this pattern. You've watched the whole change. Oh, yeah, for almost from the time where, yeah. like you said, I mean, if you go back early enough, late sixties, early seventies, there's almost a danger factor yeah. now to the point to where it's almost not needed. You're right. That's You're fascinating. Right. And that's really why we've pivoted to events. That's why we have what's called the Exto event center. You've been in my facility. Yeah, It's a great beautiful. When we originally, beautiful. thank you for saying that. When we originally built it originally, originally now it's already been 18 years, 20 years. The entire venue was meant to be tracks, but we realized early on that the LGBTQ audience doesn't need a space all to themselves of that size and shape. So we ended up pivoting to events. And that's why we do stuff for literally every corner of Denver. I, you'll love this story. And this is a good business lesson for those listening. Do you know what the bear community is in the LGBTQ community? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so Adam Mares and Jeff Morton would qualify, okay? So 
Okay, so we had we had a. I, I didn't picture Adam as a. We bear, had we but. had a we had a leather party. We had a leather party for the bear community one night okay. in tracks. Okay. The exact same night on the other side of the wall. Sounds uncomfortable. On the just other side of the, the wall. Part of it. Oh, the bears are the best, man. They're the no, best. No, no, just the gentle, le- gentle giants. The leather side yeah, of it. Gentle giants. So we had an event called Barracuda in tracks. <laughs> on the Love other it. side of the wall. Love on it. the other side of the wall in the same building. We had a fundraiser for St. Anthony's Hospital, and I literally had priests and nuns on the stage, okay, (laughs) making the sales pitch to the the donors, okay, all together in the same building on the same night. So I'm all about inclusivity, I guess. Uh, That's the punchline here. I love that. I'm going to put you on the spot. Last time I was in your building, there was a Lambo in there. Whose Lambo is that? You were in our building with a Lamborghini? Yeah, or it may have been a Ferrari. Was it inside the building? Yeah. I don't remember which event that was. It's probably a fashion show or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like getting ready for, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't go anywhere near those cars. You could like park your Lambo in there no, and walk into the office. Please, I don't have, but that's another business lesson. You know, you don't, you don't want to. Depreciating assets. Well, not, not, I was going to oh, oh, say that. Gonna... <laughs> I don't think you don't want to be a target. You don't want to show off. Mm, you know, sure. I was always taught when people ask how you're doing, you say, I'm doing all right. Sure. And I just think that. I know there's folks out there that love those things and there's nothing wrong with it. It's their right. choice, but it's just not for me. Oh, very easy for both of us to sit down and say we just got crushed in the stock market today, right? We got crushed in the stock but, market but today and our bars have been crushed for the <laughs> yeah, last that's six right, months. That's right. Yeah. Very easy to say. Yeah. But if you sit down and if you know, uh, and you had a huge win, you wouldn't say, hey, crushing it today. No, 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 no. no, no. no never, it's ever. Not. I was always taught you want to be very, very humble and modest about what you have because a day may come along when you have nothing. And this year has taught us all mm. how fragile maybe or how thin that line is between having something and having nothing. I mean, you know, you, th- you think about your business and, you know, we, we thought we were pretty smart guys in the extra organization. You know, we do real estate as much as we do hospitality and we looked to the future and we thought, well, it's a frothy market. Let's take some chips off the table. Let's, let's build up a little bit of cash. You can't forecast for a global pandemic. You can't forecast for your revenue in your hospitality establishment going down 90%. Mm. And then the governor changes the last call hours, and now your revenue is down 95%. You can't forecast that. And yeah. So, Let's talk about that. I want to talk about that and, and the committees and all that stuff. But so first off, let's go to COVID, how we've handled it here in Colorado. I, you know, I don't think – I think – there's probably no secret of how we're both going to say how we've handled it on a federal level. But so, so let's talk about polis. I got to say, I don't love the, yeah, quite well. I, I, I hate the, the restriction on the last call outside of that, man. I've, I got to say, I've been pretty impressed. I, I thought Polis has done a good job up till now. I don't have as many details as you, but overall, I thought as a state, we've done really well. Your so, take on that? Yeah, so let me just, with the caveat that okay. Governor Polis has been a personal friend for 15 years. Sure. I think he's the smartest guy we have in government in this country, if, or one of them at least, if not the smartest. Uh, he's quirky. He's different. But I think he's played this straight, and I think he's done a great job. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. The one, the one thing I do disagree on, it's he, a nitpick. He's been authentic, though, there's too. Two, Even if you disagree, it's like, yep. a real, it's like an authentic thing about it. But there's two things I do disagree on, and I would, I've told him this to his face, so I'm not afraid to say it on this show, on his face, to his face on a Zoom call. <laughs> there's two things I disagree on. One is I feel like this 50-person max or whatever they've come up mm. with is an arbitrary number. It's a one-size-fits-all number. I don't know what your occupancy here is at DNVR, but I believe that they should have done a percentage of your fire code. Yeah, yeah. Um, number one. 
And then number two, I'm really offended by the 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock last call thing because I feel like our industry is being unfairly picked on. You know, our industry has to adhere to the strictest health code rules, to the strictest liquor liability rules, or we go out of business. We already have so many restrictions and regulations on our industry that we've been good partners. And the data is a little stale and I didn't bring it, I don't have it handy, but when this 10 p.m. thing came up, I'm on a committee on behalf of Mayor Hancock here in Denver with the head of the Colorado Restaurant Association, the head of Eat Denver, and we talk every single week about advocating for restaurants and bars. Something like 8% of all the COVID outbreaks since April 1st in businesses in the state of Colorado, 8% are from our business. 8%. Mm, wow. And so why would you allow young people to go to a liquor they store till midnight? 20 to 30 was the problem. And, and so they... Yeah, but now you're, all you're going to do is you're going to allow 20 to 30 year olds to go to a liquor store till midnight, by the way. House parties. Buy booze, go to a house party. If they're in your building or they're in my building, guess what? They're going to be wearing masks when they go to the bathroom. They're going to be distanced. All right. We're not going to overflow a bar because our business is at stake. That's right. And I just feel like we've been unfairly picked on. And that is my one nitpick. Otherwise, I think the governor's done a great job. So when you tell him that, what does he say? They, so his team, who I'm in close contact with, and I'm good friends with his team. And I give them all a lot of credit. This is a hard job. I mean, his team is incredible. And I'll just tell you what they say. I mean, from Feld all the way down. I mean, it's an an all-star team, It's an all-star team. Um, They point to data that, that they claim shows their internal data. They shows that we've seen a, this is what led to the 10 PM last call. That there has been a precipitous spike between 20 and 40 year olds in COVID cases. Mm. And their, and, they, and their, their whole theory is you've got to disallow congregation. And that's so hard here. You and I just talked for the first 20 minutes here today about inclusivity and congregation and culture, right? And community. That's right. All those things are bad <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to prevent a global pandemic from increasing in its numbers. So, so that's what they're going off of. And my only point to you, Spano, is I, I still, I think we'd be in the exact same place with a fire code occupancy restriction and a midnight or whatever last call, you know, split the difference between 10 and two if you sure, want to. Sure, right. But I just think, you know, in my business, 10, 11 o'clock, my customers don't show up till 10 or 11 o'clock. So, um, and I think they're encouraging binge drinking, which is a problem. So you're better off having longer hours for people to congregate than shorter hours. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about business and masks and the whole thing real quick. You know, to me, what I've said is, and let me just frame this first. What we've seen is the government and local governments essentially close everything down over the last however many months. And, and now things are slowly opening. A lot of things are open now, but especially those first ones and say, hey, you can't it, pretty much you can't go anywhere except Walmart, Target, Home Depot and buy some stuff from Amazon, you know. And if you weren't at that level, you know, then you weren't essentially needed and right. and and then you know it created a lot of issues uh, economically of course and we're finding out things now like vitamin D is very important in this particular fight to covid seems like people who had a lower levels of those were affected more and and on and on but my main point here is that it seems to me and I, and hindsight's always 2020 20, right but it seems to me that just keeping everything open with mask regulations, 
with capacity regulations and kind of operating the way we are right now, except from the get go. And maybe you had to shut down for those first couple months because we didn't have, if you remember right, we didn't have the masks. So, so, so maybe you ended up did have to do a 30 or 60 day until we got all, until we got ready for this. But once you got to that point, it seems to me like if you would have opened up and just said masks and capacity, we wouldn't have had the issues that we had economically in this country. At least they would, we wouldn't have had, it wouldn't have been impacted the way it was. Do you agree with that? Well, you're preaching to my choir. Okay. And, and it's unfortunate that our federal leadership couldn't be bothered to wear a mask from day sure. one because sure. of vanity or freedom issues or whatever. You know, I look at the mask and I'm not, I'm no, I'm no epidemiologist. I look at the mask as even if there's a 5% chance that it prevents things, you wear the damn mask. Right. And you got to wear pants when you come into your bar. What's yeah. the difference? Yeah, you know, yeah, my yeah. bar pants are optional, but <laughs> you know what I mean. So, so uh, yeah, we just put masks on from day one and done like everything you just said. I'm just agreeing with you, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But unfortunately, we didn't have that foresight, which is frustrating because, you know, Asian countries have dealt with pandemics before. So my wife is Australian and she had us uh, stocked up like in January. And she said, SARS is coming because my wife is Australian. So they have an inherent kind of preparedness mm. okay. for Asian pandemics, you know, whether it's H1N1 or SARS or bird flu That's or whatever. Okay. And I said, oh, you, really? You got, you're crazy, right? You're crazy. And uh, she was right. She was dead on. And she had mass bot ready Boy, to go. Australia's been through it. Man. Oh, yeah. And my well, point is, year. and I stole my wife a public apology because I shouldn't have accused her of being crazy when she had us stocked up. <laughs> but... My point is, is that in Asia, whether it's China or Korea or Japan, you know, Hong Kong specifically, they wear masks. They wear masks early on and they haven't had our numbers. But, you know, there's an arrogance, I think, that comes with Americans like you can't tell us what to do. And even though it's working somewhere else, God forbid we try it here. And it, it's cost us big time. And these business shutdowns, the long long term health ramifications of these business shutdowns will be worse, will be worse than the pandemic itself. From a health standpoint, sure, sure, mental sure. mental issues, oh, absolutely, suicides, yeah, uh, yeah. domestic violence issues. I mean, I can tell you, yeah. I have four kids. My kids are, my kids hate. Right now, they're doing half and half. Yeah, and and I know that the, you know there's a lot of debate over that, but I can just tell you that they are absolutely affected by, you know, they were stuck in the house the last couple months of school, then summer, and I mean they're worn down from it. I, you know, they just are because they're kids and they got a ton of energy and they want to run around. They're just worn out from it. And, you know, kids, the one thing that doesn't really get realized is that kids can bounce back, you know, from stuff a lot of times, even a lot better than adults can. And, you know, to your point, a lot of people that are dealing with different kinds of emotional issues or imbalances or going so through depression spell or whatever. This is a really tough time for that kind of stuff. You know? Oh, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And to your point, kids, yes, children are resilient. Right. Um, again, caveat, I'm not an epidemiologist, but the evidence of children giving it to each other, especially little children, giving it to older folks is almost, it's so de minimis that it may not even be a thing. I think kids should be back in school. And I'm particularly concerned about underprivileged children because they don't have Wi-Fi in mm -hmm. the home. They have probably one or both parents working full time. They, you know, they're not there to. So this, this holding school lunch is a oh, big school thing lunch. For them. I didn't even think about school lunch. Even school breakfast. You now. got it. You got it. And so these poor kids, literally and figuratively, poor kids. It's going to exacerbate our wealth divide in this country, which is a huge problem. And I just cannot believe we won't roll the dice and let those kids go to school. If there are some teachers that are immunocompromised, 
protect those teachers, but we've got to get kids back in the classroom. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm lucky because I have one daughter. She's 20 months. We have another one on the way, by the way, in three or four mm. weeks. Is it a boy or a girl? A boy. Oh, there you go. Very excited. Another Nuggets fan being brought into the world. <laughs> but, you know, we're fortunate in the sense that, you know, she doesn't need to, you know, learn algebra right now, or I'm terrified she'd be behind in algebra, you know? So, right, right. so it's been, uh, it's, it's been hard on every family in the world. And literally, but uh, we got to get those kids back in school. It's, it's good, for, good for them, good for our mental health as a community. And, and, and I know this is a business show. It's good for business. Let's move to commercial real estate. You're the first person on. We've actually, I had a luxury real estate agent that handles huge clients in Boulder, and that's a whole different business. Yes, sure. Really cool business, though, actually. She does, she has a limit. She handles like one or two clients a month. She kind of gets to pick or choose. She picks her battles, and they're big fish, and so she just hangs, and so it's, it's kind of cool. But let's talk about commercial real estate. The thing that's interesting about commercial real estate is that it's a, it's, it's a business play it's big investment, but it doesn't turn around like like in the real estate business, like residential real estate is like is like day traders and commercial <laughs> real estate is like long play. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a good way to look at yeah. it. I am in the commercial real estate business. I'm not in the residential business yeah, other yeah. than our our group happens to own some apartments. And I actually think apartments are a commercial enterprise. Sure. Even though you're providing someone with a residence. And to your point, it is a long game. And it, you know, I'm developing a project right now in Rhino. It's a large retail complex with a grocer component to it with multifamily units. From the day I said there should be a grocer here to the day you will come and shop at this retail complex will be about seven or eight years. It takes a long time. So development takes a long time. Seeing your assets appreciate, to your point, Spano, takes a long time. We don't have V recoveries like the stock market's had um, in real estate. and. My frustration, well, anyway, I love commercial real estate. I love the creation of place. I love the creation of something new, whether it's office or industrial. I love all the food groups of real estate, retail, hospitality, et cetera. My concern though, as real estate investors, we get painted with a pretty negative brush in the media and by a lot of folks on the left side of the aisle in our political discourse. Sure, sure. And they think that we're just like Scrooge McDuck swimming in a pool of coins, gold coins in our yeah. basement. And that's just not the case. Like when you... To, like when you have an asset that can take seven or eight years to perform, and it, you know that means you're making nothing for seven or eight years. Right. That means you're spending money on architectural renderings and engineering and construction, all this stuff. But and by the way, what if your project doesn't work? You know, yeah, that yeah. happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So, so I just think that yeah, commercial real estate certainly people can do very, very well in it. The good thing about commercial real estate is you own a tangible asset. And what I was always taught by my mentors is if you buy it cheap enough, it may never go up in value, but it ain't going down. So (laughs) debunk this or give me your theory on this. There's one side of the spectrum, even led by some capitalists who say that real estate people don't deliver value back to the marketplace like let's say uh, a business owner, a small business owner, or a entrepreneur, a team builder, whatever, uh, someone who's creating products. What's your rebuttal to that? 
I guess I'm not familiar with this theory. So we've been accused of not delivering value back to the... Well, j- just just in the sense that, you know, kind of the rule in, in capitalism is essentially that the more value that you deliver to the public, the more it's, it's reciprocal, right? So if I develop something, the more people that like it, the more I'm rewarded. I eventually get big enough where I need to hire help. Got it. So now this oh. is giving to me, and now I'm hiring, now I'm more people. And with real estate, there isn't really that value proposition. Sure. It's kind of a guy with a lot of money, and he buys a place and sure. sits on it and he makes it and, he, and, it. He, and he's charging rent and it's kind of all incoming but it's not outgoing at least and I'm not saying I necessarily subscribe to that but but that's you know so let me debunk that sure sure so sure. Governor Polis <laughs> Governor Polis just asked me to participate in his eviction task force okay. which I really appreciate him asking me to do it because I you know I, I do appreciate him asking me to do it because I have a front I have a front row seat to this you know we employ well, in the good times of Trax and Exto, uh, just like your business, bartenders, barback, security, we would employ up to 60, 70 people. We employ 20 to 30 people on the real estate side. Mm. So okay, there has been a movement afoot across this country uh, and in the city in particular to not collect rent. That during this global pandemic, we shouldn't collect rent because again, real estate guys like me, like you just said, all the money goes to me. I swim in a pool of gold coins and I I spit them out and I don't do anything (laughs) for the economy. Well, guess what? Every piece of real estate we own has to be maintained. So someone has to fix the plumbing. Mm. Someone has to fix the electrical. Someone has to do the snow removal. Someone has to do the accounting. Someone has to do the rent collection. Okay. Someone has to paint the wall when the chip, when the wall gets chipped (laughs) and and we, we have expenses. So for every dollar that you pay in rent, it depends on the asset, but for every dollar uh, you pay in rent, only about eight to maybe 14 cents of that dollar comes to maybe me specifically in terms of an owner of a bottom line. The other 88% goes to all the things I just said. Mm. It can go to your lender, it can go to your maintenance crew. And by the way, we employ a lot of people. If, I, if, if, if nobody pays rent, my 25, 30 people that I employ on the real estate side becomes zero. And sure. I assume that's a bad thing. So we do contribute to the economy. I think it's a little hidden maybe because people in property management tend to be somewhat invisible. Like look at your business. If I come into DNVR tonight, I'm going to see what? 10 people working in here, bartenders, barbacks. Uh, someone's wiping down the table. Someone's serving it's, me It's a drink. limited because of our limited capacity. But yeah, you'll see people running around. But they're the visibly yeah, yeah, employed, right. which visibly is why I think there's a lot right. of sympathy. Sure. In gen- and as there should be, by the way. Sure. A lot of sympathy engendered for the hospitality community. You're thinking about every hotel bell clerk, and you're thinking about every hotel janitor. You're thinking about every bartender, every bar back, every server who just lost their job in the last few months. It's That's painful. Right. Real uh, Property management are invisible. They're behind the scenes, you know? Chances are you don't see the gentleman who comes by and fixes your plumbing when your sink is broken. Chances are you don't see the electrician who comes by when the power goes out or the, elect- the HVAC technician or the snow removal folks, right? You just show up one day and your snow is removed on your property because your property management company does it for you. So anyway, that's my case. We employ a lot of people. Yeah, I, love that. I don't have hardcore data for exactly how many yeah, people yeah, we, yeah, we employ. No, I love but, that. I love but, that. And here's the other thing with real estate you got to remember. If you're in the technology business, okay, like this podcast we're doing right now, this is you and I having a podcast. You, you put a lot of work into this. You built a studio, you bought equipment, yep. you hired guys to put this together, yep. right? You have a cost to put on this show right now. Well, whether one person listens to this show or a million people listen to this show, your cost is the same. My point is this is a scalable business. That's right. Real estate's not that scalable. Mm. The more property we acquire... I can't just use the same five people to manage it. 
Now I need to hire eight people. Now I need to hire 15 people. Now I need to hire 30 people. The more property we acquire, the more properties we manage, the more people we employ. That's not the case if you're in the tech business. That's not the case when you create something that can have infinite customers. Sure. Real estate has finite customers. Sure. So I just want people to think about that too when we get excoriated yeah. in, the, in, the, in the court of public opinion. You know, I, I got to say, I think to me, and in, in, it's just, it just it's mind-blowing because the rule that you don't have to pay your landlord while we're printing, literally, not figurative, while, mm. while we're printing trillions of dollars, not giving it to people, but then telling them don't pay your landlords, mind-blowing to me. The answer should be don't pay your landlord because we're going to pay your landlord for you sure. for these amount of months sure. because we're already printing trillions of dollars right now. So I was at a city council hearing a couple months ago on a, one of the projects I'm working on, and it happened to be the night that our city council declared. Now, these, are, these de declarations don't have legal teeth to them, but they did declare, and they went 13-0. and 0, They declared that there should be a rent moratorium for the remainder of the pandemic, okay? Yeah. And I almost said something. I was like, you know what? I'm not saying anything. I need nine votes tonight, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying anything. But I'm thinking, okay, rent moratorium. Well, I'm a property owner. Do I get a property tax moratorium? Yeah. Do I get a mortgage moratorium? Do I get a moratorium in hiring my employees and making sure they get their paychecks? Do I get a snow removal moratorium? Do I get a landscaping moratorium? Do I get a Denver water bill moratorium? So everyone always wants to pick on the landlord, the mm -hmm. property owner. And by the way, we're now calling ourselves housing providers because the landlord, landlord has such a negative connotation to it. But it's just not right. I mean, you, you understand business as well as anyone I know, Spano. The economy is interconnected. Every single piece of the economy is interconnected. Mm -hmm. And if you shut down one valve of the economy, whether that's rent collection yeah. or, I, mean, I don't know, effect, do, you, yeah. do you take your beer in here and just not pay your supplier? Right, so, right, right. So we're all interconnected. And to just have the government stick their nose in and arbitrarily say there's a moratorium on X has huge repercussions down the, the stream of the economy. Sure, sure. And here's another one for you. Evictions. So they're talking about this eviction moratorium. Actually, the CDC just came out and said there is a federal eviction on moratoriums for the remainder of the year, okay? Eviction moratoriums actually have an adverse effect on affordable housing for ways oh, that people oh, don't think about. Oh, because, absolutely. Because if this we don't affects, have, this, if, this is absolutely a socioeconomic disaster. If we don't have movement yep. within the housing space, meaning people move out and people move in, all you're doing is, is you're, first of all, people are staying where they're living, which means if I'm a real estate investor, now I'm incentivized only to rent to people who would never be evicted, which means I'm only going to charge, I'm only going to rent to people who can give me three months of rent or who pass an incredibly high credit score, credit That's check, right. whatever. Well, now you've just made the affordable, affordable housing crisis worse, even totally. though your intent was to have totally. an eviction moratorium. So you got to be really careful when the bureaucracy sticks its nose in things that they really don't understand. Yeah. But I guess yeah. that's why I'm on these task force, because in theory, I do understand them a little bit. So let's move from that to minimum wage. I know that that was something that, <laughs> as you smile, that was set, in my opinion, in good faith. And what I've said is there's a lot of companies that should be paying way more than they pay at the bottom level. 
it had a very negative effect on this industry in general because that actually didn't fit with the economics. And, and one thing that was happening is you had people that were making, you know, 80 grand a year or 100 grand a year or 140 grand a year at some of these big places. And, and you had to pay them like double. Yeah, you talk about the tip you, credit, which yeah, is yeah, a disaster. Yeah. So, right, yeah, right. so I, I, I so have, anyway, uh, let's just talk about city council, sure. the, 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 the minimum wage situation, why it's not what some people that, you know, uh, have, have good interest in this thought it was going to be. All right. So I'm going to say something that's probably controversial. <laughs> that's why you love me. I don't believe in minimum wage. I believe that there is a wage that a person is willing to work for, and there is a wage that an employer is willing to pay, and somewhere in the middle is the wage. And when the government sticks their nose in and says the wage shall be X, it disrupts the mm. natural course of the of the economics. Boy, I feel like you could do the same thing on healthcare. I okay, well, like we'll get to that too if you want. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, this has probably backfired because it means that we've actually employed less people than more people because the minimum wage has increased, right? I, I, you, you as a bar owner end up hiring less people People to do more work, which is not good for them and probably not good for your customers either. So that's number one. Number two, one of the problems with minimum wage is there's a, there is a movement afoot among some folks in our country who believe that everyone's entitled to what they call a living wage. Well, there's a, I mean, a living wage is really, that's a big number, right? That could be $40,000 a year, it could be $50,000 a year, depending on where you live. So, right, right, so right. the notion is that we as business owners have an obligation to provide everybody with a living wage. That's a philosophical debate. I'm not sure that should be the case. And moreover, minimum wage was really meant, for, I'm sorry, bar and restaurant jobs or working at, you know, fast food establishments. Or like I used to sell, uh, uh, I used to sell mattresses in college. I was a file clerk in high school. Okay. Yeah. I um, sold clothes at Mr. Rags. Yeah, Remember it was, Mr. Rags? It was yeah. an entry level job. Yeah. It wasn't my living wage. I lived with my parents or in the case of college, I lived in a dorm room. It was just give me, it gave me some extra spending money, you know, so that I wouldn't starve to death. And if I, you know, saved up enough to, you know, take somebody out for a drink or something, I could do it. So I think we've really conflated these two things of minimum yeah, wage with yeah. living wage. And I just don't believe that it's the it's incumbent upon enterprise to provide everyone with a living wage. But I'm going to give you one exemption and I'm going to contradict myself on purpose. Yeah, I do think if you're a publicly traded company and your CEO is making pick a number, 20 million a year, right. 30 million a year, right, 50 right. million dollars a year. And you have folks working there making $12 an hour. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just not right. Yeah. If you're a private enterprise like you and me, that's your business. You built it. The, the public can stick their, keep their noses out of it. But sure. I do think if you're a publicly traded company, I'm open to a conversation about legislation that equalizes that a little bit. Because to me, that, to me, that's just not right. Yeah. The one caveat, and to kind of play devil's advocate, the one thing that goes against the entry-level job and the minimum wage thing, I think the one logical pushback is uh, housing costs. You know, 20 years ago even, I mean, I remember my first apartment was $450 a month. I'm only 37, so I'm not, I'm not saying, like, my first apartment wasn't in 1968. It was in 2005 or something. So, like, 2001, whatever. But, you know, it, it now it costs so much to live. And the problem is, is, like, the amount of money people are making compared to what it costs to... Even if you take out cost of living and you just say cost to rent or cost to own, 
it's so much higher than it ever has been in American history, and I'm just not sure how we close the gap. I, I don't know how. That- yeah, so uh, I got I got strong opinions okay. on that. Okay. <laughs> Happy to share them. I hope I haven't offended all of your your <laughs> listeners by now. It's a um, business podcast. It's so a business it's, podcast. Yeah. So so a couple things. The reason housing costs have gotten so exacerbated again, it's the fault of basically two groups: the government and the NIMBY crowd. You know what I say when I say NIMBY? No. Not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. Okay, so look at San Francisco. Okay. Okay? San Francisco oh, has a that's housing the- crisis. Why? Because all those rich, uppity, frankly, white people who were hippies in the 70s and bought their three-story walk-up in San Francisco 40 years ago don't want a 80-story tower in their backyard. They don't want more housing. They don't want more congestion. So these local neighborhood groups are so powerful that they come out strongly against any new development. And this has happened in Denver. This has happened in San Francisco. This has happened in Los Angeles. Look at Los Angeles. Los Angeles has a housing crisis. Why? Because everything in Los Angeles is three stories. That's why it has a housing crisis. The government, combined with the NIMBY component, has made it so hard to build anything. I, this is what I do for a living. So I'm a, I'm a seasoned veteran. You can see the scars on my body from neighborhood <laughs> battles. And the government is so scared to piss off the neighborhood groups that they basically force you as a developer to get the neighborhood's group permission to build something. So guess what? It takes forever to build something. And you have to come up with all these concessions. Mm. And you have to come up. Well, guess what? Time costs you production. It's a supply and demand issue, Spano. Sure, sure. The reason those apartments have gone up in cost on a monthly basis is because we don't have enough of them. But the government and the NIMBYs get in the way. So here's my solution. I'm not a whiner without a solution. Here's my solution. Love this. If you live in, a, if you live in an area where you're zoned for what I guess we call single family residencies, leave those alone. Leave the bedroom communities alone. If you are located near a train stop or a major bus stop, or on a major thoroughfare, and I would consider Colfax right here to be one of those, you get unlimited zoning. And you heard me say that correctly. Unlimited. You should be able to build a 100-story apartment building next to a train station mm. if you want to. Right. But you can't. Well, that would solve things So fast. let me, I'll give you, I'll give you a real-world example. In Rhino, our base zoning was eight stories max next to a critical train station. It took us two years, two years and 50 community meetings with all the surrounding neighborhoods, many of whom can't even walk to the damn station. And we hondled, and we ended up after two years with 16-story zoning. 16 stories at the second most important train station in all of Denver. The first is Union Station. The Rhino Station is the second most important. 16 stories. That's called tepid growth. And all it's going to do, in the two years we wasted futzing around with that rezoning, we cost ourselves an opportunity to build thousands of units. Wow. And so this is an example of the NIMBYs and the government getting in the way, by the way, probably with well, some good intentions, but getting in the way. You got to let the market build to the demand and they will not let us do it. And that's why your costs are so high. New, shouldn't New York, I mean, it seems like everything in New York is, is, is what you're <laughs> describing. So how come that hasn't solved that problem? That's is a great, it population? That's a great question. So New York obviously has a huge population. New York has very onerous affordable housing requirements on anything new that's built. And they're so onerous that the market rate stuff that you and I would in theory, so you and I in theory would not qualify for an affordable, with a capital A, an affordable housing unit, nor should we. But the same problem as San Francisco that affordable requirements are so onerous, it's like 30% of all the units have to be affordable or something, that the 70% of the units 
that they make available to the market buyer, okay, they can charge, they can charge whatever they want because of the demand. Mm. So again, government regulation has exacerbated the problem. Right. Yeah, right, right. even in New York. And, and a lot of time when government's paying for it, they pay a premium. Oh, well, every time. So here's my solution to that, okay? Here's what I would do for affordable housing. And I'm going to recommend this on my task force next week. So you're getting a sneak preview. Okay. Keep it simple, stupid. That's the Andy Feinstein policy. Okay. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. The old for kiss. Every, for every unit of multifamily rental housing you build in the state of Colorado, 10% of them shall be, shall be allocated as affordable and you take 30% off the rent. So let me give you an example. Let's say you build 100 units. 10 of them are affordable. Okay. Let's say the market rate on those 90 doors uh, is $1,000 a door, then the cost, the, the, the rental rate for those 10 doors is $700 a door. Just take 30% off. Right. Leave the government out of it. Leave the qualifications and all the BS out of it. Let the government handle that, you know, with who qualifies for those 10 doors and just keep it simple, stupid. And every, there's no loopholes. There's no buyouts. There's no negotiations. Every building built in the state of Colorado, for now on, 10% of the units are affordable with 30% off the rent. Keep I, it simple, stupid. I didn't expect to go here, but because of the way this conversation's going, you seem like you have an answer for everything, so let's talk homeless. Okay. It, it's the, um, one of America's biggest problems right now. No one can seem to figure you out. You have a front row seat to it right here. That's right. No one can seem sure. to figure it out. One of the craziest things to me is that this is a little. this will be controversial too, but you know, I'll wait till I give you my take on the home. There's a lot of empty shelters. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's there a are. lot of empty shelter space. Yes, there are. So, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of homeless people, for whatever reason, don't want to be at a shelter. They'd want to be outside okay. in a tent. I, I don't know what it is. But so anyway, that's the that's a huge issue. You know, and, and I, I guess I'll stop there. That, that that to me is is the one that that says, OK, so if we can't build places for people to go if we build them and they don't want to go what's the solution and then you know the other one is we obviously you know i think that the biggest plague this is multi-layered and multi-meaning you know there's dozens of layers in this issue but drug addiction is one of the big issues here it's one of the drivers of this these shelters are very anti-drug and alcohol they're not necessarily a great place if you're trying to stay in the zone, so to speak, on your on your kick. So I think that that's one of the issues there. But anyway, th those are just kind of my my observations and things that I've kind of talked about and wondered about. And, you know, that's why I've seen we've seen people do drug like friendly drug zones and stuff. And people say like, oh, my God, well, it's like, well, listen, we can't get people to shelters that are anti drug and alcohol. They So and, and I. I I know that the, the drug friendly zones scare the hell out of people too. So I don't know what the answer is. It's the one that I just say, I'm glad I don't have to come up with the solution. So anyway, you want my solution <laughs> yeah, to that I one? Okay. Solution. So first of all, when we talk about the unhoused community, homeless folks, you gotta be, first of all, you gotta really, you gotta remember these are people, these are human beings. Right. Okay. And there's a confluence of circumstances that has led that individual to that tent or, you know, or to that drug abuse by the side of the road or whatever. And, and it's hard for guys like us to relate to how you could get there. So I think you, first of all, you have to remember, keep that in mind with everything I'm going to say, because I don't want to sound cruel and I don't want to sound cartoonish. I think a lot of times we tend to lump homelessness into one group 
when in fact there are several distinctive groups. The first one is what we call the hidden homeless, okay? These are people that fall into homelessness. They may have made some bad choices, but a lot of times it's not their fault. They could have lost their job, they could have lost their apartment, maybe bankruptcy, maybe a business partner screwed them, maybe a spouse screwed them in a divorce, and they fall into homelessness. And these are folks that live in their cars, couch surf, are in the shelters, are using motel vouchers. These are folks that we hire at Exto in many cases. I suspect you do, and you may not even know it behind the bar here and washing dishes and stuff. Our greater humanity must take care of those people, must. And I believe we have the funding in place to take care of them. We have the shelter beds. We have the hotel motel voucher programs. We have the supportive housing. That person should never live in their car. They should never be moving from motel to motel. They should have a, they should have a place to live and we should pay for that, number one. Because love they want that. to be part of the love solution. That. They want to be part of the solution. They don't yeah. want to panhandle. No, you know what I love about that is that the other people that that I talked about, yeah. they wouldn't take you up on that offer. Well, anyway. we're getting to them. So 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 yeah. I love this because so this does yeah. take care of that problem. Those people will use this offer and they'll they'll build you off of it. it. Love that. You got it. So we gotta take care of that's critical. Now there's a second category which is a really tough one, okay? Now these are folks I can't wait to repackage this all as my <laughs> own opinion. So these are folks these are folks that are either drug addicted because of opioid abuse, abuse or whatever. And as a result of their drug addiction, they are mentally disabled or mm. they are mentally disabled. Mm -hmm. And because our country's lack of a social safety net has failed them and they don't have access to their medication. Like I have, I have colleagues who have children who have bipolar disorder and they have the economic means to take care of that. If you don't have the economic means to take care of that, some of my colleagues' children could be on the street begging right now, okay? Wow. That's how thin that line right, is. Right, right. And so to me, that group, and you gotta be really careful, I don't wanna cartoonize a group of people, that group needs to be institutionalized. They should not be on the street. They should, and I know that's a non-PC thing to say, institutionalized. Right, right, right. They should be in a shelter of some sort that's different from the other shelter from category one. They should be in a shelter with mental health supportive services, drug addiction supportive services, to have them on the street living on concrete and pavement and is just cruel. Yeah. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Okay, now. So, so, but how do you do that? Well, we got to pay for that. And, right. and, and by the way, I mean, but so do, do, you know, say, do you know how much money Denver spends a year on homelessness? No. Pick a number. Oh, I mean, I. Pick I, a number I, that you think would be a big number that the city spends um, on homelessness every year. $100 million. Okay, well, it's $50 million. Okay, so. okay, okay. But if this, new sales tax pass, if this new sales tax passes this fall, which is going to add another $40 million, it's going to be $90 million. So almost your number. San Francisco spends $350 million a year on homelessness. How, how are they doing over there? And oh. LA spends $650 million a year on wow. homelessness. How are they doing? Okay, so, but then there's category three. This is the least PC thing I'm going to say on this show all day. These are criminals. These are criminals. These are people that are choosing to do drugs. These are people that are choosing to deal drugs. These are people that are choosing to lay a tent on someone else's private property, which is a crime, it's called loitering. And oh, by the way, it's called littering. And these are people that are choosing to live off the grid and choosing to be bad actors. They need to go to jail. And people will tell you all the time, you can't arrest your way out of homelessness. I disagree. And they can't go to jail for a 24 hour like citation and they get let back out. They gotta go to jail for six months until they reform themselves and are willing to be participants in our society, or guess what? You stay in jail. And somewhere in between category two and three, Spano, I am open to a compound type concept, like a Red Cross refugee camp type concept, because we cannot have, and by the way, all three categories, even the bad actors, 
people shouldn't be living on sidewalks. They shouldn't be living in parking lots. They shouldn't be living behind dumpsters. There's got to be a better answer. So again, category one, supportive housing and motels, et cetera. Category two, institutional care. And category three, jail. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that um, one of the, you know, one of the biggest issues is that you, when you fall into one of those categories, if you're in that first category, like you talked about, I mean, you can auction, you can go to a labor ready and find those that, that first category. Those those men and women are climbing out those other two categories. Man, it's so tough to there's so far you go, you know, in uh, there, the way that the system is set up, the lower you are, the harder it is to climb out of. And it's a tough climb. I think my only concern would be on the third set that you talked about that, you know, if once you fall into that system, man, uh, and you're, then you're coming out and then you're on parole and then you're, you don't have a place to live. You've burnt all your bridges. All of those people that you talked about, they have made a lot of wrong choices. They've burnt a lot of bridges. They've stolen from people. You know, I've had those people in my family and even tragic endings to, to some of their lives. And, you know, I think at the end of it, everyone wants to know what we could have done differently. And at the end of the day, there was just, it was almost nothing you could have done. But uh, what happens is, is they get stuck inside of these systems and it's almost too rigid because what happens is these people have to live even a, a more, th they have to cross all of their T's, dot all of their I's, and it's got to be perfect. And they're the most flawed. And so... It's really tough to get out of, you know, especially if you have now been impacted, not just socially and, and economically, but mentally because of maybe some of the stuff that you've taken, maybe some of the stuff that you've seen, you know, so it's tough, man. But at the end of the day, I don't know if there's another solution outside of that, but that is a tough one. I do think as a and look, you're bringing up all great points. I think as a as a as a temporary solution, I think it's better than what we're doing now. Yeah. Not as well as we could be. I mean, look, at the end of the day, this comes back to having a robust education system and a robust healthcare system. Yeah. And your listeners are probably wondering, what side of the aisle is this guy on? Yeah, yeah. I actually believe the government should provide education, healthcare, and infrastructure, and defense. And defense, by the way, means internal defense, like police and pandemic security, as well as external defense, like terrorism and war. And it should provide that to every single person in our country regardless of the zip code that they were born in, okay? If we did that, those four things, we wouldn't have these problems, but yeah. we don't do it. We don't educate each other the same. Well, we're starting to see data now that the complaint about what you just said is that it would cost too much. We're starting to see data now that it would it. cost less. See, this is a business show. I completely disagree. If you invested in those four things, education, yeah. infrastructure, healthcare, and defense, regardless be, of your zip code, that's right. I guarantee you we wouldn't be spending $50 million a year right now. I totally agree. But I totally agree. that aside, we do need a temporary solution. And I do think a red, this is going to sound horrible, but I do think a Red Cross type refugee compound type concept would be a lot better than what we're doing right now. But back to the NIMBY thing, nobody wants it in their backyard. Denver's trying to pilot a program called Safe Outdoor Sites. And every neighborhood they've pitched it to says, hell no, right? Because this is going to become a magnet for drug dealing and drug, drug using, and there's going to be needles on the ground and defecation on the ground and et cetera. So let's find a better place for this and let's do it outside of the city 
where people can rehabilitate with security and <laughs> mental care. But then Frederick says hell no, oh, yeah, or yeah. whatever it is. You I, know, understand. They all say I understand. Hell no too, right? I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to invite you to something. I don't want to say it on the air because it's a private meeting. But I am going to invite you. I am. I am gathering a stakeholder committee. Okay. Of homeless folks and business leaders in this community, and we are meeting at Exto within the next week. Cool. To have this conversation. Okay. Because I need to educate myself more on how people fall into this yeah, circumstance. Sure. Right. They also, I think, need to have an understanding of where the business community is at on this. And so uh, I'm going to invite you to that meeting. Okay. Awesome. Because I'm not, a, I, my wife says it's the dirty dishes theory. I can't walk by a sink with dirty dishes and not wash them. So if there's mm. a problem, we got to clean it up. And yeah. this is a massive problem and I'm willing to help clean it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the other thing that's being impacted now, a lot of this turns into... What we're seeing now is is there's a lot of stuff that's being called a systemic racial issue that actually is a socioeconomic issue. The problem with it, though, is that because of the percentage of minorities that are having socioeconomic issues, socioeconomic issues become systemic racial issues. Yep, that's a great way to say it. Uh, and really, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, and so this is, like I said, there's so many layers to this. Yeah. It's so complicated. Yeah. You know, there is no super answer that handles it all like you said i mean yeah. even in this response you had you had to break it into three categories that all have different things because that's how complex well, we all is. want black and white answers right. to things and that maybe that's you know we all we all want these cut and dry answers to things and and life's not that simple my mom's a uh, my mother she's retired now but she was a therapist for many many years and my mother taught me a long time ago and this applies to your relationship with your spouse or your friends or your colleagues or your uh, you know your employees whatever life's really gray it's just not black and white, you know? Yeah, Life's yeah, really yeah, gray. Really and I have, I've been blessed to have friends from all walks of life. That's how I was raised. Let's, let's bring it back to the outside of this show because I know we need to wrap up. I've been blessed to have friends from all walks of life. And I was, blessed to be, I was blessed to understand early on that you don't prejudge people, you know, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their orientation, regardless of what they're wearing or they're driving. You just never know. And... I just think that there's a lot of gray and, and I think it's, it's, there are, you know, we, we are, there are certainly groups in this country, including the folks that we've celebrated at tracks for 40 years that have gotten the wrong end of a lot of policies and a, a lot of, you know, I'm Jewish. I mean, I, I know exactly what it's like, you know, maybe not me personally, sorry, but my ancestors sure, know sure. exactly what it's like to be hauled off in a cattle car to a concentration camp Absolutely. simply because I was born into a different ethnicity than somebody else, right. okay? And, right. and as Jewish people, and I'm not religious, but as Jewish people, we are taught early on, almost immediately, we were once slaves and we were once strangers in the land of Egypt, and therefore we must be welcoming to others who are strangers mm. in our land. Love that. And I take that so seriously. And, and, uh, and that's why I, 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 you have to listen to and respect everybody's point of view, but I agree with you, Spano. I think a lot of it is socioeconomics as much as it is you know, inherent racism structural racism let's 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 talk about uh, before we get out of here i do want to touch on the committees and talk about you know uh how these laws are set you're on the economic relief and recovery council i know you're on a couple other committees you just talked about the eviction committee and stuff so uh first off let's let's talk about some of that stuff let me give you outside perspective maybe this will help when you go to these committees to me what it feels like is that a decision is made 
by people that, you know, may not have a great understanding of business. Maybe certain people inside of it do, but at large, you know, these are kind of made willy-nilly and the rules are then passed down in a moment's notice to people that entire lives are based on planning and structuring and organizing and within 24 hours in in the last six months it's been even less than 24 hours we now have to completely pivot change entire models change entire schedules change entire lives for the people that work in these places and we never know oftentimes we have to wait until we watch the news to see what the new rules are going to be it just doesn't seem like sound it seems to me like if I was running, and this is so easy to say, but you know, it's like when you're watching the Nuggets game, well, I would call a different inbound play. Right. But you know, to, it seems to me like if I was doing this, I would want to plan something out and then I would want to have my committee inform all of my business owners some way. Hey, listen, starting on the 16th, I know it's the 11th. I'm giving you five days. This is what we're planning. This is why we're doing it. Why doesn't it work like that? Or at least it doesn't seem like it sure. works like that. So very fair criticism. We, we need to kind of bifurcate two concepts here. Okay. So there's government regulation, which is, I think it's some of what you're referring to, you know, like, like, oh, by the way, starting tomorrow, your last call is 10 o'clock. That's right. Is that That's what you right. mean? That's yeah, right. Yeah. Or on so, Monday, you're closed. You got it. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so in defense of what I'm involved in and our committees, we have no say over that okay. at all. Sure. Sure. In fact, it's the opposite. After it happens, my committee has to figure out how to adapt to it. Okay. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you are. And maybe that's a bad answer, but I'm just saying the committees I'm on specifically, um, I agree with you. You know, the Colorado Restaurant Association, who I work very closely with, begged and pleaded with Governor Polis and his team. Um, remember when they announced when restaurants would reopen? And he's like, well, maybe we'll do it on a Tuesday. Oh, yeah, oh, I know. They, we just like, give us two weeks notice. Come on. We found you know? out that there was a mask policy in the middle of a Tuesday. But I'm going to give, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna give, uh, I'm gonna give our, yeah, the mask policy. I'm with you, dude. I'm going to give our committee some credit. So the reason... 300 bars and restaurants in the city of Denver right now can expand onto their sidewalks and their parking lots and in some cases into the street. That was the work we did. We came up with that because we said to Mayor Hancock, and give Mayor Hancock credit, we said to Mayor Hancock, if the state government is going to limit how many people we can have inside, then we must expand our monetizable space outside. And we got that done. You now, know, it makes the city look better, too. Now, I don't know if you... I, I love the way it looks. It's, I've never been more proud of something that I've yeah, worked on looks, since the rezoning in Rhino great. three or four years ago. Sure. So I'm proud of that. Now, did it happen fast enough? But I thought we rolled it out. You, Every restaurant knew about it. And, and in the, again, in the defense of the city of Denver, zoning, public works, license and excise met with my committee, and we literally discussed the pros and cons. Now, I am the glass breaker, whatever the phrase is in the group. I'm the one that says, why does this take so long? If Brandon Spano and DNVR wants to stick chairs on their sidewalk, let them stick the chairs on their sidewalk. Have them go on a website and say, guess what? I'm sticking chairs on my sidewalk. Come inspect me anytime you want, but I can't afford to wait three weeks to put chairs on my sidewalk. That's who I am in these meetings, just so you know, okay? That doesn't go very well with a bureaucracy that's worried about the 1% chance that because you stuck a chair on your sidewalk, a guy's going to come by on his bike, he's going to hit that chair, he's going to fall on the street, and he's going to get killed by a bus. Okay? Oh, right, right. And then the city's You got it. For it. And I would, by the way, I'd still say, put the chairs on the sidewalk. Yeah, and inspect yeah, yeah. me later. 
and let's alloc- and let's sure. allocate our inspectors to when they close down a street because that's more complicated. So just so you know, you're, I'm glad you're also an ask for forgiveness guy. I'm 100 percent an ask for forgiveness guy. And by the way, I say this in front of these city officials, and they're open. They get it. They totally get it, and they want to do the right thing. They just move a little slower than we do. So. I, I don't know what else to tell you, though, other than the, than the um, here's a sports analogy. The goalposts keep moving on us, and I'm with you. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. know, like, why can't they tell us now, hey, guys, just so you know, in two weeks, 11 o'clock becomes midnight, okay? And I'll just tell you one thing I'm working on right now with the city of Denver is let's make these patios expandable all the way to the end of 2021 so that every proprietor can prepare with heaters, with tents, with outdoor furniture, security barriers, whatever we need in our industry, Let's buy it for two years worth of use, not two months at a time. Because right. to your point, we came on. So I am working on this. We do work on this. The problem, though, is I don't have any say over, not me specifically, our committee doesn't have any say over when our government leaders decide to slap these regulations on us. We just don't. Now, we've told them, please talk to us first. Please talk to us first. Let's come up with a decision together. Like, why is it to be 10 o'clock? Why can't we make the arguments for midnight and let's work on it together? And to your point, Spano, give everybody a week's notice, you know, but they won't do it. They won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. How did the change to 11 happen? Do you have any insight on that? Like, you know, the behind the scenes? Because so, I wondered, okay, why the, not new? Why not midnight then? Yeah. No, it's If you can question. go 11, then you can go at midnight. Well, we made that argument. Um, I was involved. Because in those, that hour's huge. Yeah, I was involved in those conversations. That hour, believe me, my customers don't show up until 11. Believe yeah, me, yeah. it's huge. Well, uh, I know, you know, we're a little pub company uh, partner here. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I say we because we're part of the whole team here. You know, Little Pub Company has bars that were, like you're saying, I mean, almost exclusively an 11 to 2 a.m. Oh, I don't think anyone shows up at Don's Mixed Drinks oh, until oh, midnight. Ice House? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so yeah, I mean, and, uh, and they're getting clobbered you, from that. Uh, all I can tell you is our stakeholder group, okay, which includes the Tavern League, the Carver Restaurant Association, we asked for midnight. And the state is basically saying, let's walk before we run. They're very concerned about a spike in cases due to congregation. And in the state's defense, and you know this, and I know this, and maybe we shouldn't say this on the air, but I have seen how customers behave as the night goes on, and it is hard to keep their masks on, and it is hard to keep them from congregating. And I'm I'm reasonably confident that we'll get to midnight in a couple weeks. Yeah. But of course, to your point, which asked, which kicked off this question, I can't give you that answer while we're sitting here because no one's told me. So last one, I wanted to ask you this personal question. We had a really tough task when we reopened and they told us we only had 50 in here. And the reason why that's tough is because we have two options. We have this massive online user group and they want to be a part of this. We've got essentially a situation where we can go first come first serve and just the first 50 people in here get to watch the games uh, and everyone else is you know you have people driving from all around because this kind of is a destination and then we have to tell them they got to drive back home or whatever we made there was a guy who had to drive back to central city last week i still hurts me my heart right now thinking about it so, or we can do RSVP and then it goes online and, but then it's almost exclusive to this community and we don't necessarily kind of get to grow outside of it. Cause if you're not in this, you're not in the fraternity, then we don't get to kind of add you to it because we're like, Oh, this is only for people that, you know, are in the 
environment of DNVR because they see the link on social or they're on the email list or it's, they're on the website. Um, but if you've just been in the neighborhood and you want to be a part of this because you see it's packed and you hear the stuff, then you know you don't get a chance to in, unless you unless we can cross you over and, and we tell people on the phones or tell people at the door, hey, you got to go online and stuff. And I can already see by the look on their face, they're saying like, what? What do you mean? You know. So we decided to go the RSVP route simply because we wanted some of our members that, again, have, if a guy drives from Thornton, we want him or her to know that she can get in when she gets here. And the RSVP does that. And so we've done the 50 RSVP thing and, and then and, and it turned a lot of people away, too. So and just like you, we have friends in the marketplace, whether it's Chris over at BST or it's you, whatever, you know, and Chris or, is a, by the way, shout out to Chris. This guy's been fighting for our business he's, more he's than anybody fighting. I know. I he's love him. Fighting. He's my brother. And we're on this restaurant committee every single Tuesday, and he's yeah. been a warrior, warrior. Um, or it's yeah. you know, or it's sending him down to another um, little pub company or whatever, you know. But you know, at the end of the day, those are right. So we chose RSVP. Was that the right choice? I'm going to the simple answer is yes. So we have the exact same problem with tracks. Okay. I mean, I have this. We we have an outdoor concept called Rainbow Alley, but we can only have so many people out there. The problem is, is that a lot of maybe this is a Denver thing culturally. People don't respect the reservation. I sound like Larry David, but they don't respect the reservation. Yeah, yeah. And so we've had like 20 no-shows, yeah. and, and yet we turn people away. Yep. Oh, I hate so that. Yeah, here's yeah. my recommendation to you, and I don't have a great answer. Let's you and I find someone who actually knows what they're doing in the reservation space, uh, yeah, yeah, like good, a Troy Guard or you know, someone who actually runs a traditional restaurant, and let's just find out how they do it. I think what they do is they do like 80% reservation and they leave 20% for walk-up. And there's oh, a little yeah. bit of magic to it. There you go. Your challenge is going to be is because of the game time. And one thing that we're working on, by the way, the fall is going to be really scary. Now, you don't have a big outdoor presence here, so it's not going to affect you as much. The fall is scary for guys like me. We have zero indoor business right now. We are 100% outdoor business right now. Oh, yeah. But one thing I'm working on with the Colorado Restaurant Association is a marketing campaign and it's because it's cold outside. We're going to say it's cool. It's cool to eat at five o'clock. It's cool to eat at nine o'clock. We got to spread yeah, the yeah. audience out because if everyone's coming at seven o'clock to watch the Nuggets game, right. it puts right. you in a terrible position. It's not fair. So, hey, the offer still stands. Actually, we'll host a Nuggets party for you. Yeah. You could be in two locations at once. I'll take them. I will. I'll take them. We should talk <laughs> oh, about it. I know. It. I know. We should yeah. talk about it. Yeah, yeah. We definitely, um, we definitely can. But um, I would do anything in the world to support you. I just think that you have to do reservations now, but you have to condition your audience to respect the reservation. Yeah. But leave 20% of your seats or 15% pick a number for walk-in. We do end up taking in walk-ins. And we had to go to a thing where we said, listen, if you're not here by puck drop, you're not here by yeah. tip-off, your reservation's gone, you know? And let me just interject with one more comment. And this is, I hope I'm not being naive when I say this. I believe the customer is sympathetic to what we're going through. Oh, I think sure. they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they understand. Like I went to uh, Machete, okay? Machete over in, uh, I went to the one in Cherry Creek. They have one here on Colfax. And before we sat down, the lady said, just so you know, you have an hour and 15 minutes. And I didn't think she was being rude at all. I said, I understand. And there's a reason why. She can't have, they can't afford to have people loiter for three hours. Sure. Right? They got to sure. turn those tables. So they're out of yeah. business. Yeah. So me yeah. as a customer, I've got no problem with that. You've got a problem because of the game. And maybe you should split into first half, second half. You know? Oh, that'd be tough. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you're in a tough spot. That'd be tough. Okay, so this last three, we got the last three here. This is the final round. Okay. okay. So these are these are these will be somewhat easy for you. Question number one. The most important book to you ever. Oh gosh. Ever? 
the most important book to you. You can only pick one. Oh my God. I'm, I'm a terrible reader. I cannot believe you asked me that question. I'm a terrible, terrible reader. The most important. You can go audio book you want? No, no, you no. Can, you I, go, I don't, I don't even know. read audio books. <laughs> I read the oh, I, I got to get you on the audiobook. Kid. I read the Economist, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. It, it'll change every week. the audiobook. Will change, bro, if I if I if I get you in my audiobook circle, oh, I'll get you hooked. The most important book to me. Okay, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. I actually do know what it is. It's called Men of Tomorrow. Okay, got to put um, it on my list. Well, wait, hold on. I'm, can I get a tie? Am I allowed to tie? Yeah, yeah, you can do a All tie. Right, there's two books, but for the same reason. One's called Men of Tomorrow, and the other one, the other one's called An Empire of Their Own. And it's about the Jewish pioneers in the comic book industry and the movie industry. Oh, that sounds great. And so you may not, I think you know, I was a, I was a nationally syndicated cartoonist. I did, an, I anim, know. And I, I was an animation producer in Hollywood for a decade. What? So comics and cartoons is a whole part of my life. And so Men of Tomorrow. Wait, how have you done it? How old are you? I'm 45 in about uh, six weeks. You, you've done a lot in 45. I know in a month I'm 45. I I'm 38 in, in December. You've done a lot too, my friend. Yeah, but we got to hang out more often. Yeah, we got to hang out more yeah, often. You've done yeah. a lot. I know you, yeah. you say you're only 38. You've done a lot, and yeah. you remind me a lot of myself because yeah, you got to touch that. a lot of things in business, you yeah, know. And that's right. and, I, and I think about everything you've talked to me about today. And I'm sitting here in this room, and I'm looking, and I'm in awe, and I'm like, gosh, like this is this is what we wanted to do at Jake's. This is what we wanted to do at Denver Stiffs. I oh, just, Jake's was great. I couldn't yeah. get there, and so I. Uh, you are on a phenomenal path. Thank I hope you, you know Thank that. You. But read Men of Tomorrow because okay. it's a great story about creativity, fearlessness, entrepreneurism. But again, it's also an immigrant story. I love that. You know, love that. Superman was created. Superman, from an old immigrant family from Sicily. Yeah. Superman was created by two Jewish boys from Cleveland. Superman is an immigrant story. Oh, I love that. Think about it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Um, I, mean, I think yeah. Batman first. was created by a Jewish guy in New York. Okay. Uh, Robert Kahn, he changed his name to Bob Kane. Stan Lee was Lieber. Okay. And he became Stan okay. Lee because it wasn't okay to wow. be a Lieber. Wow. Think about all the characters. Comic and, think and about all the superhero char culture in America. Think about all the characters Stan Lee created. Think about Spider-Man. Wow. Think about the X-Men. Think about Daredevil. These are immigrant stories. These are outsider stories. And they have to find something in them that's unique and different so that they can be successful so they can be successful in their life <laughs> and all these creators of these characters were jewish guys whose parents were first generation immigrants okay. every one of them so men of tomorrow love that second one how's that for a book love it love right. it we can't wait to read it uh, second one is going to be most underrated athlete of all time Fat lever oh. don't waste my time oh i love that yeah, pick yeah don't waste my oh, time oh that's a great pick yep that's such it's a good just pick fat lever was that's good. That's a Jason good Kidd, Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic before their time. Okay. I mean, just wow. a triple double machine yeah. in a six foot three body. And he weighed like 175 pounds, uh, fat lever. Uh, Adam Matters would tear that take apart, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but uh, but that's, just because I, I know he would talk about era and size and all that stuff but yeah but that's uh, and I, he I would thrive that. in any era i love that take i love that think take. about the era he thrived in it was a big man era and he was a triple double machine sure sure yeah uh last one is the space or business that you're most excited about in the near future that's a tough question space or business i'm most excited about for the future in the yeah, in the near future for the future <laughs> i'll tell you what it is because i'm an investor in a fund uh for it driverless cars Okay. I think that this whole concept of buying a giant piece of plastic mm -hmm. that takes up a considerable amount of square footage in our lives that you use for about four to six percent of your day 
is ridiculous. And the reason our cities are congested and our freeways are congested is because of these stupid, giant, plastic, gas-guzzling, polluting boxes that you use 6% of the day. Okay. And so I'm really excited about the driveless car. I'm excited about... My little girl is 20 months old, and I'm going to tell you right now on this show, Spano, we're going to do this again in 15 years, she's never going to have a driver's license. Hmm. Because when she gets of driving age, she's just going to order a plastic box on rubber tires like Johnny Cab in Total Recall, on her phone, and it's going to pick her up and take her where she needs to go, and I'm going to convert my garage into my office. Wow. 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 There is, there is a group of people, a large group of people, that loves vehicles, though, and never wants to see Correct. And there was a large group of people to- that loved smoking at one time, and there was a large <laughs> group of people that loved giant uh, Lincoln town cars that took up five parking spots, and there was a giant group of people that liked horses and buggies as well. So what are you well. going to do with the millions and millions and millions and millions of vehicles on the road? You're going to crush them all? They're all going to get crushed, and maybe we can convert them into something. I don't know what you do with all that metal, but where do all the millions of vehicles today go that we don't use anymore yeah. when they, when they yeah. go to the waste bin of, dustbin of history? Driveless car. Driveless bullish. Car. Okay. Very bullish. Okay. Like that. Hey, thank you so much, man. This was incredible. This was great. Awesome. We went way outside of the scope, which is good, right? That's that's when it's that's when you know it's good. Well, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you having me for this we long. Solved a, you got to send this to your buddy Polis. We solved all of his problems today. We solved, yes. In an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, no so worries. What do you want? What hey, do you need? Again, I appreciate you. I appreciate Thank the you. NBR. And yep. let's, can we do this again? Absolutely. This let's do it again, man. All right. Can't wait to uh, be with you in the meeting next week. Great. Yeah, you're coming. There you Making go. Making sure you're coming. All right. Andrew Feinstein. <laughs> Don't get out of line. I, I get it. I, I get it.